the thing is that I enjoy the process. I enjoy not knowing what's going to happen because I think this is the game. And um, I like it to, you know, keep it playful and try out stuff and just um, see what, what life's going to bring you. What impact does it have on a community if there's no word for past or future in its language and also no word for childhood or of comparison? In this episode, I speak with Bettina Ludwig. She has been researching hunter-gatherer communities for six years and lived with them for three months in the Kalahari Desert. How much interest do hunters and gatherers show in us? And is there anything we can learn from them and implement in our complex world? Listen for yourself. This podcast brings you stories from and about people who stepped into the unknown. Stories about fear, uncertainty, the illusion of security or, I don't know, let's see what it will be about. My name is Katarina Bayer and I will host you on this journey into the unknown. the fact that we're sitting here today there are people sitting in the Kalahari desert without any possession they have no hierarchy and they don't even have a word for childhood Bettina you spent about six years researching on hunters and gatherers and even lived with them for about three months what made you decide that you just want to research that topic Well, I guess as many things in life, this was coincidence. Um, I spent three years for my bachelor's degree at the University of Vienna at the Department of Social and Cultural Anthropology. And um, after the three years, I found out that this is not enough. I really wanted to know how, you know, how humans work. So I tried to find studies where I could go deeper into this question. And I started to do cognitive science. Cognitive science is um, a really interesting field, but what I found out over there is that they don't really take into account culture when they talk about what is mind, what is cognition, and how does the human mind work. So I went back to the Social and Cultural Institute, and um, I, I told myself, well, let's try again. And over there... It was really coincidence that I found the lecturer who was actually teaching on hunting and gathering societies. So this was for the first time that I found out there is actually still hunter-gatherer communities living on this planet right now. Before that, I didn't even know. So, um, well, I totally got, uh, got into this topic and I was really impressed. And I, somehow I knew, okay, this, this is it. I have to dive deeper into that. When you say hunter and gatherer, you say society or you say community, why don't you call it a tribe? What is the difference? That's a really good question because very often people ask me about hunter about this hunter-gatherer tribe that I'm working with. 
But within anthropology, we do make a difference between hunter-gatherer community or hunter-gatherer society and tribes. This is a very, well, let's say theoretical and technical term for anthropologists, and it might not be that interesting for the outside world. But for me, it's interesting because what it actually means, talking about the tribe actually means that you talk about the different style of organization. Talking about a hunter-gatherer community, you talk about a society that has, as you said before, no hierarchy, no concept of possessions. And what is really important is that they are um, nomadic and tribes, on the other hand, are sedentary. Mm -hmm. So in general, they are nomadic, not all of them still are. And in general, tribes are sedentary. So that is one of the big differences. You lived three months with hunter-gatherers and can you can you share us how their daily life looked like? I, I know that you, you lived with a, with a community that everybody learns how to read tracks at a very young age. Like how does daily life look like? How can we imagine it? Daily life is really different than what daily life is among among our community where we grew up. But it's, I would say, to be honest, it's rather um, relaxing and not a lot of things happen, you know. There's no infrastructure, so there's no streets, there's no cars. Most of the places don't even have electricity, so not a lot of things are happening. Mostly people are trying to, to gather food or to hunt. Then they spend time with their family members, kids and friends. They need to gather firewood and they need to get water from somewhere. So these are the main tasks. And apart from them, gossip is a really important part. So people talk a lot about what other people do. And people talk a lot about food because this is really important, where and how to get food. But people very often also just sleep during the day, you know. It's a rather relaxing but also funny atmosphere. People are very often there in a good mood. You hear people laughing and talking and, well, gossiping. And that's actually pretty a pretty nice um, way of living from my point of view. When you say gossiping, does it have anything to do with the fact that everybody knows everything about everybody because they can read the tracks? Absolutely. So first of all, they see each other all the time. So they, you have to imagine these communities, um, they, they're pretty small. So there's groups of around 20 to 60 people. The group I'm working with is 60 to 65 people and they see each other every day, 24-7, you know, always. So they spend time with the same people all their lifetime, so they really know each other very well. And then the funny thing is, they read their tracks. So people are not able to read animal tracks, but they're also able to read, to read the tracks and the footprints of their family members and friends. So what happens is that they actually, um, they watch other people, they watch what other people are doing, but not only when they see the people, but they watch them, they, they watch their actions through their tracks. So this is really interesting. What it means is that there is no privacy. People always know where you are, what you did and with whom you were. That makes it... Um, Well, let's say easy to gossip, you know, because you see these tracks of human interactions all the time and everywhere. Yeah, it, it sounds like the Kalahari Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> they know who exactly. you liked. Or, but when you say gossip, is it is it stories they tell each other about somebody, or is it gossip also in a negative way that they they want to also um, 
value things what others did or did not do? First of all, I have to say that I don't speak the language fluently, obviously. It's a click language, which is uh, called Schutkwasi. So it's a, um, it's a click sound language and it's pretty hard to learn, but I'm trying. And it's really fun to learn, to learn as well. I'm trying to understand what people are talking about through observation. And then sometimes I'm working with translators. They help me to translate what, actually, what people are actually talking about. And um, I think it's not only mm, valuing what other people do, which can also be part of it, of the discussions, but it's also just, it's like news, you know, finding out what's going on in the community in order to, to keep up with everything. And well, sure, there's also situations where people did something that were that is perceived wrong from an, from another group of the part of the community. Obviously, they will talk about, you know, bad stuff that people did. When you said before, like life is very chill, like they they talk mainly about food, they 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 hunt or or they gather. When I read books about hunters and gatherers, they're always described as these nature-loving people, as these people who, when they kill an animal, they use every part of it. And they're like so connected to this superpower of nature. After living with them for three months, is it correct what I read in the books? Obviously, they do use every part of an animal. Well, that's how they that's how they get food. Why should they waste food? There's not a lot of um, animals around anymore, and it's not that easy to actually hunt an animal. The other thing is that, and this is a very important topic, I think, is that sometimes from the outside we perceive these people as as nature loving or as really connected to nature. And this is a question that I get very often. So, what what about the connection to nature? And I think we need to understand that obviously these people are connected to nature, maybe more than we're here living in a city in Vienna. But on the other hand, this is not, not a, a mystic thing. This is not something that makes them superhuman or special in a way, because if we would have grown up there, we would do exactly the same and the other way around. The thing is, they are much more dependent on nature, which is their surrounding. But if I would live somewhere in nature, it would be the same. And they don't have special skills to read the nature or whatever. They have the same skills that every human does. You are able to read your environment. So me living in Vienna, I'm able to read the environment here. Seeing cars or planes, I have to deal and cope with it. And I guess that's the same um, in a natural environment. You said before that they have no possessions or whenever they kill an animal, they share it with the whole community. Even that I love to live minimalistic and I like to share, it is really, I cannot think about that everything what I have belongs to, to everybody. Did you talk with, with people about it, how they feel about it or is it so normal for them because they grow up like this that they actually don't care? Well, let's say maybe again... There are people living in the community, in the society we live, that don't really think about the system they live in. But there's others who really think a lot about the system, like like me and maybe you too. And that's the same over there. So there are people who don't really care or think about the systems they live in, but there are others too. So there's one really funny uh, situation when, when I talk to one tracker about sharing because this is this is very special over there for example let me give you an example so when i go there i have tabak tabak with me 
and um, tobacco. So I have a lot of tobacco with me. And then people from the first day on, they come and say, do you have tobacco? Can I have some? And I say, yes, for sure. Take it. And then they take everything. And then they would share it. And then they smoke it right away and everything is gone. So, But I, every day they would ask me again, do you have tobacco? And I say, no, because we you smoked, you already smoked everything. So people would not... Um, you know, they, they don't keep something for the next day, for the next week, but they use it right away, all of it. And that's very typical for hunter-gatherer societies, but that, that's very different to what, I'm, to what I'm used to. And so one day I talked to this tracker and he said, you know, it's really annoying. I always have to share everything. So when I get tobacco, I have to share it with everybody. That's really annoying. I would like to live in a culture where I don't have to share everything. And I found that is really funny because, you know, me as an anthropologist, I go there and I know a lot of theories about hunter-gatherer societies, about their, their cultural systems, about, you know, how society works. And I'm really analytical and anthropological, scientific uh, approach. And then I go there and then the tracker says, you know, sharing is really annoying. And I think that's yeah, that was a pretty cool incident for me too. Would, would they have any chance to hide it somewhere? Well, some do, and uh, that's where the gossiping started, actually. Ah, okay, <laughs> okay. When when you when you said like they don't keep anything for for the next week or something, it's it sounds like planning. And what is interesting in in the language of of hunters and gatherers, there is no form for future and no form for for the past. Does it do anything to the people you meet that they, that I don't know, they live more in the present when they don't think so much about the future and the past or they don't even have words for it? Yes, I absolutely think so. The thing is, well, we would have to go there and ask a lot of individuals how they see and perceive the world. But the impression that I got is that once there's no past tense or future in your language, you also don't think that much about what happened five years ago or what's going to happen in five years because, you know, it doesn't really matter to people. They live so much in the present because they have to cope with the present. Why should they think about what happened five years ago? It doesn't matter anymore. And I think it makes a difference, especially in the way they perceive the world. I believe that these people have a very different worldview And I believe that in general, culture really shapes your worldview and also the, the system and the structure of society that you live in really shapes your worldview. And uh, that is a really interesting part. And that is something that I really want to dive deeper into for my research. And I'd like to find out about hunter-gatherer societies somewhere else in the world and find out more about their worldview. So how do you really perceive the world if you don't think about it in terms of um, a timeline as we do? When you said how they create their world, you know, when, when I think about how we create our society, it's the stories that we tell each other. So what reality is it that the people you meet tell each other, even if you don't speak their language perfectly, but which stories do they tell each other when they sit around a fire or, I don't know, eat together? Mm -hmm. They talk a lot about their hunting experiences And they talk a lot about their experience in general that they have in the bush. So, you know, you call it going out to the bush when you go and gather or collect food, when you go hunting, when you when the kids just go somewhere and play around, that's in the bush. And 
they tell stories what happened in the bush, what happened today when I went out for gathering fruits. So they tell these storage in or, stories in order to to learn more about their environment. So, for example, kids would listen to the stories that hunters share when they were out hunting and they saw an elephant and they tell the story about what happened when they saw the elephant and how the elephant behaved and how they behaved. And that's how children learn how you have to behave once you see an elephant. So it's a lot of the storytelling part is is a important part in terms of learning also for the children or for younger people who are not that experienced with animals, for example, also with collecting food. And um, the other thing is that Once you did something wrong, once you did something that is not okay with other people, then people would start laughing at you. So that's a mechanism that happens very often among hunter-gatherer communities. Once you, you know, you behave in a way, let's say you, you wouldn't share your tobacco because of whatever reason. You want to keep it and you hide it somewhere. And then you can actually be pretty sure once people find out, they will tell the story about you not having shared your tobacco and a lot of people would start laughing. And that's something that's a really bad sign and that's something you really wanna, you really don't want to happen because if people laugh at you, that's, that's a penalty. So uh, this is also part of the storytelling People talk about things that didn't go, that went wrong, and people also talk about stuff that they think that other people should learn about. But when somebody would laugh about me because I wouldn't have shared my tobacco, would it then be okay after they they laughed at me and then they forget about it again, or is it something that stays with them? It's something that stays with them, maybe so they so that they know, okay, next week I shouldn't hide my tobacco. But you know, as people among Our community, I guess there's, I'm pretty sure there's people over there who after two weeks would try to hide it again. I want to come back once more to the, to this um, thing that they don't have a future or a, a past thing. Like right now where things change so much that we actually cannot plan, like you cannot plan your next holiday or something because we don't know about the restrictions. It is really hard for so many people because we would love to predict Do do hunters and gatherers you met want to predict something? I think the difference is that they know that we cannot predict anything. But hunter-gatherer people, they, they know that you cannot predict anything because they're so much in interaction with nature and the natural environment that they can be sure that nature and life itself is not predictable. On the one hand, it sounds really nice like this this chill there's not going to work but it's your life that you you hunt together then on the other side this not having any privacy not having any possession if I would imagine living in such a culture I, I don't know if I would be satisfied did you ever meet somebody that told you that he or she's not satisfied and want to I don't know flee from this community or go off and, and live somewhere else That's a really good question. I think we need to take into account that we don't really know what being satisfied means for them and what being in, and if there's a difference to what being satisfied means for us. I guess people are some people, maybe some young people try to break out and would like to have a different life. 
I don't think that a lot of young people are trying to break out because they're so connected with their community and they're so connected with the life and with the culture they have over there. And then the other thing is they can't really imagine the life and societies that are outside their world because a lot of people have never been to the capital of Namibia, for example. If they're satisfied or not is actually a pretty difficult question because, as I said, you can't be sure what being satisfied means. But I can tell you one thing that I've experienced is um, alcoholism. So you actually see a lot of people that are not satisfied or you, you have the impression they're not satisfied because they're um, alcohol alcoholics, they're addicted to alcohol. And this happened because the political pressure from the outside is really um, difficult for the community. So they don't, they have to, they had to give away a lot of the land. They're not able to hunt and gather the way they did it maybe 100 for 150 years ago. So they're struggling pretty much, but not all of them. So it really depends where their group is situated, if they're far away from the main center in the region where I work, or if they further away. So obviously you see people who are not satisfied because they can't really live the way they lived before anymore. But on the other hand, you see a lot of people that are loving and relaxed and they have well, they feel satisfied from the outside. I guess, again, it's the same like among us. There's people who are satisfied and then there are ones who are not. So as a researcher, you're really keen on getting a lot of information from other cultures. The people you met in, in, in the Kalahari Desert, do they care about how we live? They don't really care, no. And that was a pretty... Well, that was interesting to me because... When I went there, I thought, okay, maybe they might know um, more about my computer or my camera or they they want to know what I do when I work at home or what my family looks like, whatever. But they are not really interested. But then the next thing I found out that this is pretty obvious because what they're actually interested in is other hunter-gatherer communities. So if you show them pictures or videos of hunting and gathering communities in other places of the world, they get really interested. And they would ask you questions of what kind of hunting tools do they use? What kind of animals do they have? How do they build their houses? Do they have houses? Are they nomadic or sedentary? So they're really interested in societies that live the same way they do, but in a different part of the world. So if there would be a YouTube channel for hunting and gathering. They would love it. <laughs> they would love it. <laughs> oh, yes. But we, like <laughs> this information overflow that we have, because we have all these modern uh, things and can look in the internet and have, there's a YouTube tutorial for everything. I guess there is a YouTube tutorial for hunters and gatherers. Do you think that this information overflow that they not have is actually part where we think more about are we satisfied or not? Yes, I think so, because there's so many information and we have to filter constantly. And that's something that hunter-gatherers don't have to do. They don't have to filter that many information because there simply is not the same infrastructure. I think it is rather difficult for a lot of people in our society to cope with this information overflow. That how we, that's how we call it, I guess. And it's from my point of view, it's very important to be very present and be very sure about your filter and uh, think about 
what kind of information you want to let in and what kind of information you need to keep out? In my opinion, with a lot of these information we want together, we want to make future more predictable. We want to find our way to cope more with what is coming. And you yourself initiated the future symposium. How much is anticipating the future important to yourself? To be honest, I would say it isn't that important to myself because I am trying to learn from the hunter-gatherer lifestyle to really be present and be in the moment. And, you know, sometimes it really works well and sometimes it wouldn't. But in general, I think I, I cope pretty good with living and being in the present. But the thing is, what I found out during the first lockdown with the pandemic is that many people around me got really stressed when all of a sudden they realized that nothing is predictable which has been the same situation before, but that was when they realized, obviously. So I thought, I don't want to live in a community where there's so many, so many people that are scared and stressed. And I wasn't that scared and stressed. And I thought, I have so much positive energy that I'd like to give. So maybe let's come up with a community. Let's start a community that shares a positive outlook into the future and that supports each other in order to build a better future. You you said um, that we, we have so many options and things. I think in one interview you said you call yourself a possibilist. <laughs> so my question is, from what, from what you experience right now, how much do we actually already use the possibilities we have in our culture and our society? Because ours is maybe more complex than a community of 65 people. But the question is, do we actually use what, we, what, what this society offers to us? First of all, I think we should put away the pressure from ourselves and also the pressure sometimes from society in general. Because in general, I think we're doing pretty well. I am looking at humanity on an evolutionary um, level. So I am looking at humanity over the last 300,000 years, so the whole of our history. And, you know, if you look at humanity from such a broad pers perspective, it's pretty obvious that we're doing well. So, so many things have gotten better. And I think it is important to, to accept the fact that, you know, things can get better, but at the same time, Things can still be bad, but that that can happen at this right at the same time. And in terms of, well, as I said before, I think we should put away the pressure because if you put away the pressure, maybe the fear will go too, and then you can actually start to, as you say, enjoy these possibilities and make something out of it. But when you said before that you think that you coped quite well during the first lockdown because you learned to stay in the present. Is there really something that we can take from a, a culture like hunter-gatherers and, and adapt it in our life? Or is our life too complex already and we can actually not use anything of, of their good things? What helps me is the general view on hunter-gatherer societies. So once you, you read about hunter-gatherer societies or you... Well, you try to analyze why they live so differently than we do. You automatically, you get a really broad perspective and vision on human beings in general. And this, from my 
this helped me a lot. It helped me personally to cope with this maybe complex and stressful world that we live in because somehow I got really calm. Having a perspective on um, humanity in general or as such somehow makes you really calm. And that's also something that I would like to share with other people because it helped me so much and maybe... It will help other people as well. Uh, let's stay a bit more with the language. I heard there is no word for childhood. How does childhood look in in the Kalahari? Who cares about the children? Who teaches them? You told me already that, of course, they learn a lot about stories. But I mean, they I guess they don't have kindergarten in schools. Like what is different? How can we imagine childhood? And why is there no word for it? They learn pretty much by watching and trying. Try and error and watching are the main mechanisms of learning. So they're around with their parents, their grandparents, their friends, their siblings all the time. Like really all the time. You know, never, there's never a situation where someone says, I go to work and I come back at night. Sometimes people gather and hunt and they would be gone. But in general, there's always people around you. So the children watch other people all the time and when they watch they learn so they see other people behaving in a specific way and they will do the same there is schools in the area that i work so there's one school and some people some parents would bring their their um, children to school but not a lot so this is actually a difficult There's actually a yeah discussion going on. So some parents say, my children need to go to school for a better future so that they can have a better future. But others don't want because they say if they go to school, if they sit on a chair for hours and hours, they will never learn tracking. And tracking is the main skill that people need in order to survive and to to yeah to survive and to live but that's interesting sorry to interrupt you there but it would be the same when i ask you before is somebody satisfied or not because the ones who are not satisfied i guess they want a better future but for the ones who are satisfied they want their children to learn how to track retracks mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that's that's as i said before there is a discussion going on so some people As I said before, some people think about the system they live in and maybe these are the ones that say, you know, I want my kids to go to school. But others, they just live in the system they live in and say, well, we need tracking. Obviously, they have to stay at home. And why is there no word for childhood? There is no word because there's actually not really a concept of childhood. So people don't really make a difference between children and adults It's rather the case that, you know, a small human being is small, but it's not a child. It's just small. It's, it doesn't maybe, it, maybe it doesn't know how to hunt, but it knows at the age of five, it knows how to make a fire, where to collect some food, how to build a little shelter for the night. So small children already know a lot. And from... From the other side, adults are sometimes not really behaving as adults like we imagine it to be. So once, for example, I tried to play a game with the kids. So what is important to know is that in their language, you cannot say better, harder, bigger. So you cannot use the comparative. So that makes it 
also a difference when you start playing with the children or with the people because there can be no winner because nobody is better or less good than someone else. What a nice concept. <laughs> yeah, I found, I found out. I didn't know before, but at one point I found out. And so anyway, I tried to play with the children. I don't, I don't really remember. I think it was a ball that I had with me and I tried to play with this ball with the children. And then after two seconds, a lot of adults came and would play with us because, and they, from the outside perspective, they would behave like children. We would say, oh, they behave like children. And I really saw that they don't make a difference between children and adults. They don't say that all the people are not allowed to play anymore, to be playful. So you don't have this... Um, differentiation between the the age groups kind of this sounds really amazing because i'm always wondering why there are not playgrounds for adults because i miss them i want to go Obviously. on the swing <laughs> and then all these children are standing in line and they don't care if you want to go on the swing <laughs> take me with you next time i want to play i will i will <laughs> um the When I ask people about their greatest fear, usually they tell me it's it's to die or, or that a loved one um, dies when you say there is not really a word for childhood. Adults are like grown-up children and there is not really a right behavior for an adult or not. They can still be kids. How do they deal with death? I think there is something like grief. So they are sad when someone goes. But on the other hand... They know that this is a uh, this is the way of nature. So someone goes, but another one will come. And one of my colleagues who works in um, in Thailand with another hunter gatherer community, he said that they found out that there is no word for individual. So what we found out after that is actually that people don't really see themselves as an or less as an individual than actually as um, as part of a group, you know? Well, there's a, I think that's also, again, a world a thing of a, a worldview. So they, they feel so much as a part of the community and less as an individual being so that death, so that they experience death, death in a very different way. Can they, it also make a difference because if you don't have a past and not a future then death is not so relevant because the person is just not there anymore. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's the case as well. And I know from other communities that they would light a fire for three days and then people can go to this fire and say goodbye or do whatever they feel they need to do. And then there's other communities who wouldn't even care that much. So they would dig a hole put um, the dead body into this hole and then they cover it with big um, with big leaves and then they simply leave and that was it. When we stay with fear, you know, not just because of Corona, but there is so much fear out in this world. If it's about health, job security, or I don't know, your psychological or physical health. Um, and they live in a surrounding where there are lions, hyenas, scorpions or whatever. What is really fear for them? Are they afraid of the of the open um, desert they are living? Are they afraid of the animals? Or what do they fear? Well, that is something that was a very interesting lesson for me personally. I found out that 
hunter-gatherers are very much connected with themselves, so with their body. They know what they're capable of. They know how their body, how their system works. They know what they can... Accomplish with it? Or? Yes, yes, exactly. That's it. And um, so they also know how they would react when they're in fear. You know, they. I feel like they really watch themselves. So they know... What what's fear going does to happen, to their body what fear or... does, exactly, what fear does to them. And yeah, this is always very interesting because we from the outside, we imagine it to be a dangerous place because as you said, there's lions, hyenas and scorpions and poisonous snakes. And obviously it is really, it is sometimes really dangerous for me being there, but I think it's much less dangerous for them because they grew up over there. They know where to look for what kind of signs But on the other hand, there's also situations where they are scared. So one day we went out on a hunting trip. It was four trackers, so two hunters and two trackers and me. And uh, all of a sudden, some of the hunters, they saw an elephant. I didn't really see it. I'm really slow, you know, with re with um, seeing and watching other animals. They're really fast. But then they said, oh, there's an elephant. And so one of the trackers got really scared And all of a sudden, he would collect and pick a lot of uh, wood, make a big fire. So that's what they—that's what you do in general. When you see an animal and you want it to leave, you make a big fire because the animals are scared and they will leave. So he tried to collect a lot of um, firewood. And the other three, three trackers and hunters started laughing right away. And they... And I asked, so what, what happens? And they said, you know, he's scared of lions. He is no, uh, he's scared of elephants. He has no idea how they behave. And he's, yeah, he's really scared. And they laughed at him. But I could see in his face, he was really scared. So that was also, again, interesting for me that you can even be scared of, of elephants living there because of, you know, a specific situation or because you're not used to the bush as much as other hunters are. So obviously they can be scared of animals as well. But to be honest, I didn't know that. I thought no man and no woman over there is scared of an elephant. But they are sometimes. So they not only have supernatural powers, <laughs> exactly. but when we come back to the supernatural power and the super closeness that everybody um, tells, like they are super close to nature, one thing that, that you told me now got me, like they... Actually, their superpower is that they are really connected to their, their body because they use it far more when they have to read tracks or they, they talk more about food. And I guess in the end, this is their supernatural power. This is why they can survive in the open desert and, and we cannot anymore because we, we didn't grow up there and we lost this connection, I guess. I guess we could if we would be forced to. So if we would have grown up there, we could do exactly the same. And I think what we do here is exactly the same. So from my point of view, it's a superpower to survive in this um, information overload and this stressful and complex world that we live in. I think that's a superpower too, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, in one book that I wrote from Yuval Noah Harari, I guess, you know, the book, A Brief History of Humankind, who doesn't? He writes... 
Today, we rely on experts who, like us, only have knowledge of a small area of expertise to satisfy most of our needs. It is not possible for us to go in search of food or to carry out fine motor work ourselves. As a collective, we know more than hunters and gatherers. As individuals, however, they were the smartest and most skillful people in history. Do you personally think he's correct? Do you see it in a similar way? I think this is a very interesting perspective. And to be honest, I'm not 100% sure what to answer. Because on the one hand, this sounds this sounds pretty realistic. This is also something that I saw when I was there. On the other hand, I'm not sure because, again, this would, this would somehow make the hunter-gathering lifestyle or hunter-gatherer people better in a way. You know, this... And they don't even have a word for better. They don't even have a word for better. And uh, I don't very much like the comparison. Very very often we try to compare ourselves to hunter-gatherers or to their lifestyle. And the comparison is very important in order to understand the system that we live in or to understand their system and to try to find out what's the essence that is actually that is the same among us and among them. So I'm not really happy when we try to compare each other's skills. So, um, well, that's a really good one. Let me take it home and I'll think about it. That's a pretty nice one. Thanks. So I, I'm now afraid because I have another question to you where <laughs> there's a comparison needed. <laughs> um, the, the, the thing is that... You said you lived with, with them and they are like a community of about 65 people. They see each other every day. They have physical contact. Everybody has more or less their place. Now, we live in a, a society where like we have smaller communities and we are a big community. And it's quite complex and we have information overflow. Do you think in such a complex society we are having now, it is harder to us for find finding our place and our space and our, uh, our place in, in the community and, and what we actually can, can provide the community with? I think that it is really difficult and that's also what I see and hear from many people around me. I think what helps is to somehow get back to smaller community. So decide on the topics, on the people, on the area that you want to work on that you that you're interested in and try to try to be part of a smaller community because if we're always trying to solve everything all the problems the world has and everything and all at once that's going to be really difficult but if we try to start small and if we try to start with a smaller community and try to feel confident in there i think we can grow but we need to grow we can start big It's funny now, I'm, I'm still a bit in this thought of this comparison that you said before, because I think that when we want to compare something, we try to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else, but we benchmark it with our own expectations. And it's just not realistic that I can benchmark my expectations to a place I've never been or to a community where I haven't grown up and I don't have the skills. And, and this is where I, I get you, even... If uh, Harari said it really nicely, but how can you actually compare? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So you you really did research for the last six years, and I understand how much passion you have. And you shared a bit already what it changed you so that you can stay more in the present. But what what did you really think that has changed you the most from your research and in which way did you change because you you tried to find out more about these cultures? I guess I got much more chilled and relaxed. I mean, in general, I'm a calm person and I'm not really... Not not a lot of things really stress me out, but it got me even more relaxed and chilled because coping with such a broad topic and with humanity in general makes you realize, you know, after the first second that you, that there's so many topics, you can't cope with all of it at once, but that's okay because every little part that you will learn and that you will find out is so amazing and impressing that somehow you feel, okay, it's going to be fine. And then another thing that was, um, that somehow changed me personally was that um, I found out that the community I live in is really important to me. I guess I knew it before, but somehow, um, well, I could refocus on that one. So when I was there, you know, if you see people who are, who are, um, living the community life. So they're really together all the time and they're really depending on each other. It doesn't mean that they like each other all the time, not at all, but they live and survive together and uh, the focus is on together. So once you see that, then once you see how important it actually is to survive, to be together and to work together, to collaborate, um, you are sure that this is also something that we need, that I need in the community and society I live in. So that's a message that I took home for me and um, that I'm trying to sneak in now from now on in every little and big project um, that I start from now on. So I guess if there wouldn't be these travel restrictions, you would be with them now in the Kalahari. <laughs> yes, I would have been in August and September, I would have been in the Kalahari. I changed plans now because of the pandemic, but next year I'm already yeah, planning a trip for next year. So I end every interview with three similar, oh, the three same questions. The first one is, what is your biggest fear? Biggest fear? This sounds actually really big. It sounds like, um, like a bad thing, a pressure, something big and dark. And um, I'm not really haunted by something like that. Maybe my biggest fear or one of, or maybe a fear is that people would would stop collaborating and working together, which actually I don't think that it's going to happen. But maybe I don't have this one big fear. You know, you could ask me tomorrow and then I'm scared of something, but it's rather small things. But today you're not. Because you live in the present. This is really hard if you talk to somebody who's so in the present, not in the future. Today I'm really not scared of anything, no. What are you currently doing that you still don't know how it will turn out? Everything. Like everything I do, I have no idea how it's going to turn out. Starting um, from a business perspective. So I'm, you know, starting projects every now and then and... I never know what is going to happen. And also 
you know, in personal life, you never know what's going to happen. To be honest, I have no clue and no plans at all. And um, and you sound quite fine with it. I'm actually pretty fine with it because the thing is that I enjoy the process. I enjoy not knowing what's going to happen because I think this is the game. And um, I like it to, you know, keep it playful and try out stuff and just um, see what, what life's going to bring you. And having a ball with you in the desert and playing like a small child. <laughs> yes. So the, the last one, I ask you to, to comment on a quote I put in, put in this uh, little nice book. So I will flip through the pages and you will say stop, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's go. Stop. Left or right? Left. Do you want to go top, bottom uh, or middle? Bottom. The bottom. 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the things you did do. So throw off the bowlines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover from Mark Twain. Really good one. As I said before, this is also my, um, my point of view, just... Just do it, just go and live and try to keep it playful and, you know, try to enjoy what life brings you. Try to put away the fear and just have fun with your life. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can listen to this podcast on www.intotheunknown.at, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have an idea for an interview partner or just want to leave me some feedback, please don't hesitate to contact me on Instagram or send me an email on office at intotheunknown.at.